Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, the squirrels have gotten in the mailbox as we discuss an unfortunate new vulnerability in squirrel mail. Then we talk about a surprising new entrant to the space of anonymous domain name purchasing? Yeah, that's right. And Dan and I get just a little bit jealous of Canada and their very sensible policies towards net neutrality. Plus, it's your feedback, a rambunctious roundup, and so much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Welcome to this week's episode of TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems, network, and administration podcast. This episode was streamed live on April 25th, 2017, and is brought to you by our three excellent sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. Joining me this week is our favorite host, the admin, the organizer, the explainer. Oh yes, it's Dan. Welcome to the show, Dan. Hello, Wes. Hello, audience. How's everyone? When I say it like that, it almost sounds like Shodan, the the search engine, which comes up on the show from time to time. Apparently, that's a very popular site. (laughs) Hmm. How are you doing this week? Uh, I'm doing better today now that my network is sort of running again. Oh, so did you do some maintenance this weekend then? I did. You may remember that I I got a a 48-port Unify switch. Yes. Well, on Saturday, I figured, what the hell? Just throw it in. What could go wrong? Yeah. What did go wrong? Well, this wound up running most of my network for (laughs) Sunday and Monday. What is is that? This is a little Hutu. Okay. I don't know if I've heard of that before. It, It can act as... A wireless access point. You can plug it in to a wired oh, network. Cute. Yeah, it can charge USB devices for you. That's nice. what the that's what the USB port is for. Um, but then th- this one is for charging this thing. So this is like a twenty two hundred, I think twenty two hundred amp hour battery. No, sorry, ten thousand four hundred amp hour Ooh. milliamp hour battery. Yeah, that's reasonable. So, so this ran my entire Wi Fi network. For over 24 hours, and it's only half full. That's awesome. Sorry, sorry about on the mic. It's only half full. Does the light, yeah, the lights show up there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hey, handy. So that's a nice little device there. It is nice. The real use case for it, though, is sharing GoGo connections on a plane. Oh, really? So you, you've done, you've used that before then? I have. I, I used this on two, uh, two uh, on a Denver flight return. Barely touch the battery life. Um, what, I mean, that's especially do, important when you're on a plane or other confined environment. Yeah, because uh, what this does is I was flying with someone else. Yeah. So you authenticate to this thing. It's just a login. You authenticate it to it just like a WAP. And then from there, you connect through to GoGo's Wi Fi, authenticate there. And then everyone that's authenticated to this can use your GoGo connection. That sounds great. That sounds awesome, actually. I, I, I need more friends like you. Or you're somewhere with crappy Wi-Fi, but a decent wired connection. You just Stick plug that in. And away you go. So how is it configured? Is it easy web interface or something else? Yes, there's a web interface on here. So you know it comes up with a default 
right. IP address, you log in, you adjust it, you configure it. Um, but there are a lot of configuration options. I really like it. It's very simple. Um, I believe there's a way to upgrade the fir- the firmware inside, but You'll have to I have investigate. not looked at that. I'll have to investigate that one day. Um, but I, I love the dual nature of it. You can use it for recharging your phone right. while you're using it to surf the internet. That's awesome. So, so, it, so it ran your whole little uh, your whole house there. It it ran it ran my laptops mm-hmm. so that I basically I. I ran a cable from here to the switch up there and got that working because the Wi-Fi wasn't working yet because all the Wi-Fi is on separate VLANs. Yeah, okay. So as you were, like, fixing stuff up, adjusting settings. Well, I was fixing stuff, getting us. And I locked myself out more than once. Perhaps half a dozen times I locked myself Uh. out. This is where serial cables and... Yeah, sometimes, right? Like, that's, that's what cables. it comes down to. Yep. Become useful. And you're super Be- thankful that you had them. Yes. And everyone should have one of these, which is a USB to serial cable. Yeah, those are, I mean, like, it's one of those these, tools where you're like, I hope I don't need this, great. but if you do, well, it's awesome. Because laptops generally do not have nope. serial ports. I'm so not even sure why I would try to buy you. a laptop with a serial port. 1985, maybe? You can buy them. They're pretty heavy, yeah. Um, because you have to be at least, you know, right? Yeah, exactly. So maybe if you can take like a take like a nice modern laptop, add the serial mm-hmm. port, and then just fill mm-hmm. the rest of the chassis with battery. Hey, maybe yep. that's a product. Yep. Um, the what I would like to do is have several more of these cables. Yeah, and have a couple more of those because these are just so useful. Um, this is something like a 12-foot serial cable. Oh, look at that, yeah. It's plugged into, you can see, can you see it's plugged into the, or it's plugged into my PSNs box right oh, there. Yes. I don't, yeah, PSNs box. So, and then that orange cable is plugged into the modem. And it's it's more or less running right now, but I don't have all my VLANs properly configured. In fact, I'm ashamed to say everything is running on all Ooh. All VLANs. Yes. So no segmentation nice. yet. I don't like it. Yeah. But you've got your own your your regular file. You use like a Unify access point or Ubiquity Unify or something in the Ubiquity line. Yeah, uh, I have uh, two wireless access points, um, uh, a Unify uh, ten gig sixteen port uh, switch, oh, and then yeah. okay. a one gig. Well, here we got pictures. <laughs> there we go. Um, do you have that um, that first Twitter link? Let's see. Um, I bought the 10 gig switch because I wanted the big servers in there to talk quickly because they pass a lot of data around. They're mostly backup servers. Like there's 27 gig in one, 10, 27. Yeah. Now, the picture on the left is the old uh, switch. That's the network. Uh, extreme network switch. Cables look the nice. Downs- Thank you. It was, it worked well. It wasn't too bad to configure, but it was loud and it was hot. Whereas the one on the right, which was just in there for configuration, was um, much quieter, much much quieter. 
Now, is there anything down below that? Are there any... Oh, there we go. Cables okay, undone. Yeah. Nice. So, yeah. Remove the cables. Um, that didn't take too long, but it is kind of persnickety. Get get rid of the... the I only removed the bottom ones because the top ones were would be in the way. And uh, while I was thinking about this earlier today, I realized what I really should have done is set up a little lab. Right. With all kinds of... Uh, I have enough other like little spare switches. This is another recommended buy. It's a little Netgear switch. Oh, it's just it's like a, a little five port or something. Four port. It is a five port. It's a ProSafe GS105E. It was some ridiculous price on Newegg one day and right. I bought two of them. And they're fully managed. Oh, really? Fully managed switch. That sounds actually very convenient. In, in that, yes. There's a lot of times where I don't need a form factor very much bigger than that. I only have a couple devices, but I do want a little bit of the managed functionality. Yeah. And uh, I'm not using any of the managed bits, but it shows up in the, um, in the Unify. Like Unify is very nice GUI and it lists yeah. all the devices and it shows up in there. So that was impressive. Um, awesome. What else, what else went wrong? Um... Oh, this is a very interesting toy. Okay, yeah. I don't know if I'm familiar with it. It comes apart. You feed all your cables through like this. Oh. <laughs> like that. Yeah. And then you put this thing back on like that. And then you pull. Oh, okay. That seems actually very handy. Where did you get that? Amazon. Nice. It is called a cable comb. Cable comb. And so it, it keeps all your cables in a nice little bundle. And you you put Velcro, you pull a bit further, you put Velcro, keeps them all very nice and straight. It's a lot easier than doing it by hand. Right. And then at the end, you can kind of disconnect it and plug everything yeah. in. And then you, you have a nice go like pull that, Take Take them all out. Put wow. this in a safe place for the next time you need it. Okay, I'm going to have to add that to my wish list. So that, that, and the other thing that you should have is something like this. It's a cable tester. Oh. So two little ports on the, on the side, plug the cable in between, push the button, the lights come on, tell you not whether or not the cable's good. So it just sends like various, various signals yeah. across, measures the, the other side and... Yep. Neat. It's not, it's not, it's, it saved trouble when I said, I wonder yes. if this cable is bad. And right. it was. Especially when you're like down in the middle, you're trying to get stuff back up in operation, or you're yep. like in yep. the middle of your rack, things are all over the place. You don't want to have, you know, it's just like, does this work or not? Can I just throw it in the trash bin? And I think I bought these at Home Depot maybe 10 or <laughs> 10 or 12 years ago. Oh, wow. And they've, they still go. Uh, what are they? They're ideal link master. Mm. I'm sh they may I not have this name. particular one. Sixty-two two hundred is the model number, but anyway. Linkmaster, awesome. Well, there's when some, you uh, really need it. Some pretty good uh, tips, hot buys. Get them this week; they're on sale. Get them this week. Yep. Send all your dollars to. Thank you. <laughs> uh, anything else that's new in your life this week? No. What about you? 
You know, I think it's actually been pretty simple. Uh, my, my phone did die a couple weeks ago. I've got the replacement here in studio. I came yesterday. I didn't have enough time to set it up. But after the show tonight, I will be back in the civilized age of a modern smartphone. What did you get? Uh, just a replacement for the same one. So I had the, the Google Pixel. Uh, yep, it it yep. died, turned into a brick, used a backup phone for a while, and they sent me a replacement. So that's good. <laughs> um, the most annoying thing about not having that working was my phone would not work. Uh, yeah, totally. And then this afternoon, I was on a long extended phone call with someone, and we were both sitting here working. And all of a sudden... He moved across like this in the screen, and I thought it was a reflection in my monitor of someone behind me. Oh, that's and terrifying. just this chill went straight down my Who's in this room? <laughs> it was scarier than oh any movie I've seen recently. All right, well, we'll try to make sure that the show today is a little Thank less you. scary than that. We'll Thank keep you. It, we'll keep it tame but interesting. That's very kind. So uh, I guess that brings us to our first story this week. It does. It's a little bit. Uh, it, it's unfortunate. I've uh, I've used this product in the past. Uh, so have I. Yeah, I think a lot of people have. So, uh, all right, why don't you lay the bad news on the people? Well, when I first read about this, I wasn't really sure that that it was a seri- serious issue. Um, and then I realized I was taking uh, issue with the way it was being described, and I'll I'll, I'll explain as we go along. So squirrel, ma- squirrel Mail was once the web interface to go for. It, it's PHP-based. It, it does a very good job of uh, talking to your mail server, your mailder. Um, I forget it. Does it. Is it an IMAP server or just strict? No. It doesn't use IMAP. It's just, just strictly mailder. So. You know, that was my understanding, I can't but, remember. but it's been a while since I've used it. Let's check. Yeah. So while you look that up, I'll go a little bit through this. So it's PHP-based, but basically do not blame PHP here. It's it's not PHP that is fault. Too often people harp on about PHP and say, oh, my God, it's just full of bugs and all these things. That's not the problem. The problem is the people doing the coding and with everything if you do it poorly, without knowing all the security implications, mistakes can happen. So don't blame the language, silly people. So um, how it comes about is Squirrel Mail actually invokes a binary. It actually invokes user user sbin sendmail, which it, which you can set in the configuration, but it, it invokes a binary, and it invokes it with uh, escape command, escape shell command. And of all, any time you're invoking a shell command from a program yes. uh, that accepts user input, you're gonna have trouble. Uh, yep, it, right. It's the same like if you're using eval with user input. All of these things, it's just yep. arbitrary computation can happen. Watch out! Don't trust your freaking users ever. So. This was found sometime in January, or, or it was reported to, to the uh, maintainers in January. And it's only being released now 
because it's reached the time period where the guy said, okay, well, they haven't done anything about it, so it's time, time to release it. Now, one of the things that the original post says is SendMail, perhaps the most popular mail transfer agent, often comes configured as default on email environments. Well, SendMail used to be the MTA. It used to be everywhere. Yeah. And it was written in a time when everything was trusted. Nobody did anything evil on the internet at that time. And if you ever get a chance, listen to Eric Allman. Does that sound right? Yeah. Listen to Eric Allman's talks on the internet. You can find them on YouTube, possibly on the BSD Can channel, uh, about the early days of SendMail and all the things that they had to do and how the the goal lines were constantly being moved as people wanted new features and connecting new machines and stuff like that. And this is not long after the time when you can measure the number of computers on the internet on a piece of A4. There was not a lot of them. So anyway, back from SendMail. Um, I'm going to jump over to the next page, the one about uh, the actual exploit. Yeah, sure. The one on legal hackers. If you scroll down to where you see the first code base, the first little code bit where they do an STR replace, that's it. So this is this line, this envelope from equals STR replace. This is how they're trying to sanitize the code. And one of the things that they've done is try and get rid of slash zeros and slash ends. Well, what the guy did in this exploit is use a slash T, which is a tab character. Oh. So it's just another white space character, and they're not getting rid of all the white space. So all they do is they pass in parameters. And because you're invoking a binary on the command line, these are just optional parameters. And what he does is he says, um, you use a small file on disk, put it there. And then basically, if you can do that, if you can put a small file on disk, and the next command you send to send mail, say, use that small file as your configuration. Ooh. And so, yeah, it's an easy, it's not an easy way in, but I can see where this is going to cause all kinds of trouble. I mean, it makes so, it kind of like, uh, you know, we talk a lot about like, don't roll your own crypto in the same way. Like don't, don't roll your own sanitization, like sanitation or whatever. Uh, Cause it's hard. Like there's a lot of obscure ways, especially if you're sending something to the shell or mm-hmm. other things that you're going to forget about. Uh, yep. So, you know, you, if you have to do anything like this in the first place, which ideally you shouldn't, you should probably try to use something that's, you know, battle tested, open source has been audited or at least, you know, looked at by a lot of people. Do you know anything like that? Like something better than this? Like uh, uh, there are only certain characters that are valid in, a, in an envelope from, I would think. Yeah. But it's still difficult. It's a, uh, oh, it's absolutely difficult. I would have, one thing I would have done would be um, not URL encode, but um, uh, there's a PHP function escape. P- right. P- escape. Something like that. Yeah. This but is basically, it, w- it would have conver- converted the slash T to a percent 4D or something like that. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. 
I don't know if that would have helped, but it's not the point right now. That is not the point. So the next thing, and this is where I get annoyed with the article, is to say the most recent version, 1.4.2.2, and prior versions of the package are believed to be vulnerable. As it's an open source project and version 1.4.2.2 was released nearly six years ago in July 2011, it's not entirely clear if a patch is coming. But the most recent commit to the FreeBSD free port was in October of... October, mm, yes, October 2016. And what they are doing on FreeBSD is they're picking up the development releases from Squirrel uh, Mail, and they seem to be running fine. And those releases, um, if you go to the download page, you can see that there are the stable versions and there are the development versions. And there's one there dated today. I wonder if they fixed it. Nice. Oh, I hope so. So perhaps this whole story is out of date. But yeah, it's right there. There's a development version that, that's been released. Basically, it's 1.52 SVN is what they're calling it. But they, they date it. Um, and yeah, they've just changed the release mechanism. They're doing development versions all the time instead of stable versions. Yeah, I know and yeah I've seen that before a few times, you know, in open source projects like Grub comes to mind. There's a long t- period of time between Grub releases. So like a lot of major Linux distributions was just shipping, you know, various semi-stable development snapshots and other things. But it's nice to see that like, you know, development continues. The, the fixes do exist, even if it's not, you know, released well, in an official release. Well, it is fair enough because people get tired of working on stuff yeah absolutely i mean and maintaining stuff right like years after you're like this Uh, was exciting to write and now i'm stuck here decades later perhaps still maintaining it it, even if you're not excited about it anymore that's why i like writing blog posts because you don't have to go back and correct something (laughs) right like you may correct something that's factually incorrect but they're, I'm not going back and rewriting it. They're expected to age, right? You have to, yeah. you have to view them in that context. And it's not like a tool, right? There's no functionality. While that may no longer be useful to read, at least you didn't break anyone's workflow. And some blog posts, like, believe it or not, one of my most popular blog posts on the FreeBSD diary is how to untar. Wow. That's pretty funny. Although, I'm consistently surprised how bad people are with the tar flags or tar commands in general? Um, I'm pretty sure that I called it untar.php. I did. Nice. Untar.php. That that was written in 1999. So that's 18 years old. And I had no idea how to untar. Here we so are. So I started writing it and do- documenting it. And time after time after time, this was the biggest hit in my stats. You know, other things would peak in as they were newer, but this one was always ranked up there highly because people Google for untar. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure a lot of new users to the Unix environment are like, what is this command? How do I work? Where's my zip file? Mm-hmm. And so, like, I mean, probably even years later, that's still a helpful re- reference. Uh, there's other ones like... Uh, Setting my bash prompt. That's mm. not changed much. Right, yeah. Um, but some things like how to configure S-Tunnel. Ooh, Do yeah. people still use S-Tunnel? I, th- I think so. I use the uh, 
I end up preferring what's the one Colin Percival makes as part of Tarsnap. Oh, oh yeah. Um, I forget what it's called. I love it. It's really useful. Yeah, S pipe D. That's what it's called. Yeah. Yeah. What do you use it for? Uh, like one main use case was for I don't use it for that currently, but for a while I was running um, Synergy, the mouse sharing software yes. on yes. multiple things. But uh, yes. I'd, I'd paid for it in the past, but I didn't know where my license was or whatever. And it is open source still. They just require you to pay if you want binaries built, which was not a problem for me. But you don't get SSL support unless you get the premium version. So uh, S-Pipe D there, and it worked beautifully. So I've used it like for many things like that where just like mm. bootstrap a more secure, you know, yep. especially if it's just like it's just two two socket connections. You're like, beautiful, done. I used to use it for something. I can't remember what. It, it was it was a link between ports, yeah. between two things or something which did not speak SSL. Um, I've always wanted to have Synergy set up here, but between my home laptop and my work laptop, they can't talk at all anyway because the work laptop is on a VPN. Ah, uh, right. So, so it, it has no contact with home whatsoever. You have to do some funky routing or something. Yeah. So, uh, so no. <laughs> no. Um, so, yeah. I've used Synergy. I, I liked it. it. It was very nice. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, it's a good project. I'm glad it exists. And uh, if you can support it, please do. Yep. Back to Squirrel Mail? Yes, back to Squirrel Mail. So uh, this was written on April 24th, only yesterday. So the second last paragraph says, while there isn't a fix available, Golunsky is encouraging users of the package to switch to a non-SendMail transport like SMTP. Why, why anyone wouldn't be using SMTP? I guess if they didn't want to set one up locally and they just wanted to use user local SBIN, sorry, uh, just to send mail binary. That's weird, but, though, yeah. And apparently there is an unofficial patch in the um, in the exploit article, in the vulnerability disclosure post. So if you want a patch beforehand or if someone wants to compare his patch to the release that came out today, please have a look. And... That's about it. I actually stopped using Squirrel Mail a few years ago and went to RoundCube. Okay. How do you like it? I've considered using it, but have only played with like a demo box. I hardly ever use it. (laughs) Hardly ever. Um, Not because I don't like it, but because I don't need to use it because I'm either on my phone or on my laptop. It's only when I'm somewhere where I don't have any of that that I use it. Like if you're trying to check your email in this unusual situation where you don't have one of your native devices. Um, maybe it's upgrading, but yeah. yeah, I almost always use one of my other devices. Uh, I'm, I have round cube running in one jail, uh, with its own postfix uh, implementation. So okay. it can send out, right. But then it only sends to the, to a local, to another local smart host. And, it talks to the IMAP server that's on the same host, but in a different shell. Oh, nice. So even if you did get in there, you'd get the password for that, but you wouldn't be able... Anyway. Anything it, else? It's isolated in- as much... Sorry. It's isolated as much as I can. No, nothing more on this. Nothing more, yeah. Oh, you- wait, 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 wait. Something else. There's one little note here. Yeah. Um, so basically, 
the the moral here, I think, is people sometimes tire of a project and lose interest. So be aware of that and monitor. One, one good thing you can do is set up a Google alert. In this case, squirrel mail exploit. And that might alert you to anything that's com- coming down the pipeline that you might want to fix real quick. Yeah, I think that's a... Uh... That's pretty. That's, that's good advice. Um, probably wise for anything that you you know set up those kinds of things for any software that's crucial to your day to day workflow or security or privacy would be. That's not something that I actually thought about a lot, but that's good advice. You're welcome. Huh. I will say also you're making me a little bit jealous of your email setup right now. I'm like paying a third party to host my MX record, records and do IMAP and that kind of thing. I do too. Oh, okay. I have a third party do all my mail ingress. They do all my spam uh, filtering. Yes. And, okay. Because I get sick of maintaining that. Yeah. But I host my own IMAP server. Okay. Um, and then do backups by ZFS snapshot and Ooh. stuff like that. Well, that leads um, perfectly into our first sponsor this evening because if you're like me and you're jealous of Dan setup, you probably need some new hardware to set up that new mail server at your house or other, you know, maybe it's just going to be a great free BSD box, run a bunch of jails, fill a whole ton of rolls. Look no further than IX systems. Head on over to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. That'll get you started. They have a great guide for buying hardware for open source. So, I mean, that that's a great way to start. If that's not for you or, you know, you're, you're a little more curious, you're like, what else does IX systems have to offer? Go to the About Us page. They have a great graphic here. It highlights a lot of the things that they support, that they use. And they talk right there at the start about how they're champions of open source. And that's what makes them so different in my eyes from a lot of the other big hardware vendors. You know, they're in it for the hardware game. And IX Systems is too. They make amazing hardware powered by awesome Intel processors. But IX understands like what you want to use on that hardware, right? And they're experts in that too. So they don't just say like, well, you know, the, the RAM works. Uh, that's all we can help you with. No, they want to understand your load. They want to understand what your workflows are. You know, how much do you expect the system to grow? They want to work with you end to end to make sure that not only does your hardware work, but the product, the service, the solution that you're trying to sell or create, that that works. Really, they, they hinge their success. It hinges on your success. So whether you, you know, you need a whole new giant rack for your enterprise or you just need a new server for, you know, for mom and pop. Or for the small office. It doesn't matter. IX Systems has got it covered. IXSystems.com slash TechSnap. Scroll down just a little bit. You'll see a ton of the awesome people they work with, right? Like University of Berkeley, Evernote, Sega, Noah, VMware, Adobe. These are big names. And it shows you that IX Systems, they're taken seriously. They are serious. And they're really the best in the biz. If you want to get started, I recommend the FreeNest Mini right there down on the left. You'll love it. You just click that Learn Now button. If you're anything like me, you will be transfixed. Look at that. That is a sexy machine, and it's super performant. It comes with FreeNAS, which is an awesome open-source storage hardware, software, appliance that iX Systems runs, right? So that's the thing is they're invested in the community. They love OpenZFS. They work upstream with those things to make sure that the projects they support, the projects they deploy, the projects they sell, that they're first class. They know what they're doing. They have the experience. So if you're thinking about buying some new hardware, Make sure you choose a vendor who understands that, you know, your server needs to be custom because, you know, you're custom, you're special, your projects are special, you deserve the best that you can get, you deserve the best support, white glove service from talented sales engineers. Look no further than ixsystems.com slash techsnap. All right, with that out of the way, what do you have next for us? We have something that you brought my attention to 
which is a anonymous domain name purchase service. Right. And I was quite intrigued to find out how they did did this. And I started reading along on their website, and my notes are not coming up. My laptop is slow as crap right now, and I don't know why. Um, Come on. Switch over to that page. There we go. mystery, everyone. There we go. So I started reading about these guys and did just a little bit of poking around to find out. Did you figure out. out how to pronounce their name? That's step one. No. Nala? It's almost like the name of a dog down the street. So what they're doing is they're giving a new service for people that take their privacy serious. One of the hardest things to do is retain anonymity when you buy a domain. I mean, like, you yeah, can, the first thing out the gate, they're like, hey, give us your contact information. Credit card, please. Yeah, exactly. So what these folks are promising to do is to buy the domain on your behalf. Give us the money. We'll buy the domain for you. And you can do this with, um, you don't need an email address. You can do it with an anonymous XMPP account you can set up anywhere. So how are you going to pay? They take Bitcoin. So they are not a domain name reseller. They don't sell you the domain names. They buy it and hold it. Oh, okay. That makes sense. So the price includes your right to use it. So obviously they're charging a premium for their service. Um, They have any cast of DNS. But when I went over to the about page, They said, if you ever want to move the domain from our system, we'll, of course, give you the domain without any additional costs. And then down there, it says it's run by 1333LC based in Nevis. My first guess at Nevis was um, St. Bart's. No, hold on. I learned more. I looked at the IP address of the web server. It's registered to a group in Nicosia, Cyprus. So I sort of think that it's hosted in Cyprus, but I'm not sure. Interesting. And the person in charge of that block, the per, the only name associated with that web block, is an address in Sweden. And the MX is also hosted in Cyprus. And I had a look, and they use Postfix, maybe. It, it answers as Postfix. Um, but... Some of their FAQs were interesting. When you purchase a domain name through Nala, we own it for you. However, the agreement between us grants you full usage rights to the domain. Whenever you want to, you can transfer the partnership to yourself or some other party. But what legal recourse would you have if they said, nah, right. this is I our mean, domain? That's a, that's a lot of trust to place. and I mean, I assume that there's like some sort of contractual thing but that then you know under under which country's laws would those be enforced by uh, um the domain name is laos okay dot la is laos okay interesting so, so far we have laos sweden uh 
Cyprus. Uh, I thought there was another country I mentioned. But yeah. Yeah, I think you did. Interesting. Oh, oh, oh Nevis, I, I, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, ne- Nevis is, I forget where it was. Oh, uh, I've got it here somewhere. St. Saint Bart, St. Saint Kitts. Kitts. That's what it is. St. Kitts. Saint Kitts. Yeah. Interesting. Trans-global so, operation, <laughs> apparently. If there's ever a legal dispute, what happens? I don't think you have a hope in hell. No, if I don't think so either. There's a legal dispute. Dispute. You, you really have to trust them. And <clears throat> I can't imagine they'll get any very worth, you know, expensive domains, domains that have a lot of value. But still, losing a domain is a big pain in the ass. It is. I mean, a lot of times that's, you know, intimately connected with your branding, with your marketing, all of that. With your email address? Yeah, exactly. I had a domain uh, almost expire the other day, and I was, you know, it was a scary thing. Somehow it had been put into the junk mail, right? And I thought most of them were like auto-renew, but Mm -hmm. I was like, I don't want to lose that domain. So I can, you know, especially if you build your business on something or your your whole image. Go go and pay for five or ten years in advance. Yeah, totally. And and it's okay, because even if if that domain, even if that, uh, even if your current registrar goes under, that data is stored elsewhere at yeah. the main so long as you're not with the top level <laughs> yeah right yeah exactly if the whole internet goes down well then uh, hey yeah. the point is moot anyway so did you did you try to sign up for this service no no i had i had no interest did you did no, you try no i haven't but i mean it might be it might be interesting i, I looked at the prices they start from 15 euros Okay. All the way up to 60 years. And that includes, you know, like, like commonones.com, .eu, .org, things that you dot org, actually dot want. .org is, yeah, .org is 15. Nice. Yeah, okay. Hey. I mean, it's not unreasonable. A lot of places, you know, you're already 10 plus for, for yeah. a domain. And then if you, you know, if you weren't Doc. using the service, you might get the WhoisGuard service from whatever registrar you're using anyway. That's another couple dollars. So. .com, .net, .org, 15 euros. So, fitting in with you know, um, anonymity has always been a big thing about activism. Um, e- even yeah, you know, hundreds of years ago, people used to publish under pseudonyms. So this is nothing new. It's just harder now to publish under a pseudonym um, because you could always print something up in your backyard if you had a printer in a backyard, and then just distribute it. And no one would know who it came from. They would just know the people distributing it. Um, but it's much – also having a website makes it easier to get out to everyone. Getting that website and having it anonymous is much more difficult. This sounds like a valid way to do it just so long as you don't wind up losing a lot of money should something go wrong here. Right. Because even if this company were to go under or just disappear – what can you do? You can't transfer the domain. Yeah, you don't own the domain. domain. You don't own it. Yeah. Yeah, or they, but get, it is, they get bought by some, you know, mm-hmm. hostile company that you don't like or doesn't like yep. you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you were to use it, I guess I would say, you know, like hedge your bets, uh, make sure that you have multiple domains for yep. the same thing, but, things that you can transfer, things yep. that aren't connected to it. If your goal is to remain anonymous, you don't care about this side of it. Right, yeah. Um. Because what you could do, 
is you could publish something, you know, if this, if you're worried about being able to identify yourself saying, hey, listen, I'm the new person, I'm the person that was behind this, the way you do that is you write a document and you put an MD5 on the website or SHA-256 and you say, okay, should this website ever go down, I will produce the document that matches this SHA-256. And then that's a good if idea. The web, yeah. If the website disappears, they take it over. You then start up a new website and say, "Hey, it's me again. How do you prove it's you? Because you previously published this SHA two fifty six, and although it's pretty hard to get a collision, I mean, it's it's at least a step, right? Like that's a that's a yeah. reasonable way to approach it. Some ways to verify that, like, yes, the person who started this." Is the same person who's speaking now. Who's starting this new one. Yeah, exactly. And here's my new, um, what would you call that? What would you call that thing you're dropping so that later on you can prove it's you? Like identity token or something? Or like, I don't it's not know, really sure. identity, but it is just showing that you, you know, you have this, it's the same person in the same control of the same secrets in theory. Proof of identity, something. I, yeah. I don't know. I'm sure there's a proper word for it. Audience, write back to us and let us know what yes, you come please. up with. Yes, please. Yes, please. So while I wouldn't use them, I can definitely see the need. And yeah, the people that would want to remain anonymous aren't really worried about the domain going because it's not the domain. It, it's the content and right. it's it's the branding that they put on it. And that brand can go on any domain. Right. As long as you make sure that you have you know like email lists or Twitter things or other channels that you can reach the people yep. that are interested so that you can tell yep. them, Hey, go to this new domain. Mm-hmm. Yep. Interesting. Okay. Uh, anything else you'd like to add? Anything? I mean, anything interesting in your DNS landscape? It, if anyone comes in and starts using this, let us know. Oh yeah, please do. Because it'll be interesting to see how this goes. I completely yeah, agree no, with that. I didn't I didn't sign up. Yeah. So yeah, let us know if you do. We'll be curious to see, you know, they've just they've just started, it seems like. So, you know, it'll it'll be it'll oh. take a while to determine, you know, how well how well it works if they get actual adoption, if they're successful. Look at the bottom of the page. Injala at DNS spot spotetti dot onion. Oh yeah. What the hell is that? They've what is got that? A, they've got a tour address down there. Neat. I do not have a Tor browser set up uh, on this computer, I so I can't it. browse to it right now. But it's nice. I mean, I did so, see some things in there like FAQ as well that it seems like at least they're mm-hmm. they're trying to take security seriously. Like, you know, they how can I register email or XMPP? But they mentioned, you know, they use OTR, they support BGP. So those are those are at least words I like to see. I don't know. You know, it's hard to say, does the implementation follow through? What will their practices be? What will their relationship with their consumers and the community be? We don't know yet. Should, they also have though. a link. They also have a link at the bottom of the page with I pre- to iPredator, right? Like it sounds like, uh, yeah. So in there, who's behind this? That we're a team of committed internet activists who are also involved in other privacy projects, such as the iPredator VPN service. Some of us have also been involved in projects like the Pirate Bay, Pirate Birin, and Flatter. So it seems like it's some players that we've seen before. People who do take this stuff seriously, um, which I mean, that makes me feel a little bit better. But we have to uh, wait and see. It is still kind of a tenuous idea. How do we know? Yeah, how do we know? Also, yes, right? Like, anyone can write that. It's, 
Where's yeah. their identity token? Come on, guys. It could eat. I think this looks too smooth. Yeah. To be a scam. I, I looked. Uh, the domain was registered late 27, 2016. Okay. So it wasn't like just overnight. No. I wonder who they registered with. I wonder that as well. We'll have to look that up. That'll be in the post show, perhaps. Uh, all right. Well, then, uh, unless you have anything else, we can uh, move Nothing. on to our next sponsor. So if you do get yourself a really fancy new private domain, I've got the place you should host it. That's our friends over at DigitalOcean. Head on over to DigitalOcean.com. There you'll find the easiest way to spin up a brand new Brand spanking new, even, VPS of your dreams. Whatever distribution you want. Maybe you want FreeBSD, Debian, Ubuntu, Red Hat, whatever you're fancy. In under 55 seconds, you will have, for only $5 a month, a brand new 512 MB of RAM, 20 gigs of SSD, one CPU, and a whole terabyte of transfer. Just look at how easy it is, right? That's one of DigitalOcean's best things. You go there, you use our promo code, which is SNAPOcean, just one word, under lowercase, SNAPOcean. That gets you a $10 credit. And like I said, prices start at only $5 a month. So that's like two months. You can experiment. You know, hey, maybe you want to play with Squirrel Mail or RoundCube or other projects. DigitalOcean is a perfect place to try that. One of the best things about them is probably you'll find in their community section, in their awesome documentation, you'll probably find tutorials to set up pretty much all the software that you want to play with. So it makes it, not only is it easy to get going, it's easy to keep going because they have enterprise level features. Things like monitoring, load balancing, private networking. So you can have, you know, unmetered connections between droplets in the same data center. Plus they have backups, snapshots, pretty much all the features you've come to expect from a serious cloud provider. But it comes in a super simple, intuitive interface. They've got a great API. Great apps, a ton of community apps, scripts. We use it here at the network to control our integrations with YouTube and other things. So it's super handy. It has a ton of uses. And they have data center locations all over the world. New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, Toronto, Frankfurt. It grows all the time. I swear, every time I check, they have a new data center. And go follow them on some of their social media accounts because they have awesome. If you enjoy the pictures of Dan's, Dan's Rack, the other hardware we show on this show, you will love love the pictures DigitalOcean have. They have some beautiful data centers immaculately cared for. And you can tell, right? They, they do this seriously. It's real virtualization, KVM hypervisor. They got 40 gigabit E right to those hypervisors. So they know what they're doing. They're in it to win it. And they want to make the whole thing super easy, simple, and fast for you. So DigitalOcean.com, use our promo code SNAPOcean. That lets them know that you appreciate them sponsoring this here program and gets you started in under 55 seconds with a brand new VPS of your very own. So thank you, DigitalOcean. Alrighty then. I almost got so distracted, I was just going to go spin up a droplet, start playing, maybe install mm-hmm. RoundCube, but no, mm-hmm. no, we're in the middle of the show, so we have to keep going. No RoundCube yet. No. You have to wait. Maybe you have tonight. To wait. Although I got to set up my phone still. Hmm. So many things round to do. RoundCube, phone. Yeah. RoundCube, phone. Which one are you going to do? I don't know. You need RoundCube before you can use your phone. Yeah, right. Exactly. I got to get the email thing working. All right, well, so the last two stories were felt kind of related. This next one takes a little bit of a different track, and I feel like you're, you know, maybe you're just going to rub it in my face here. Uh, but sort of. Sort of. I think it's good news. Well, if they can do it, anyone can do it. Yeah. So what's going on? Basically, Canada's gone full net neutral 
or is going to. Wow. Um, so the photograph there at the top is the tower. That is Parliament Hill. The tower in the middle of it is the Peace Tower. Um, and this is known as Parliament Hill. And so everyone's up there saying, yay, yay, yay. Um, any Canadian should recognize that photo. So to the point. CRTC, uh, Canadian Radio and TV. Uh, I can't remember what CRTC is. equivalent, but better, of FTC or FCC. It's sort of combined. No, FTC is Federal Trade, right? Correct. Uh, yeah. Okay, so, so the Canadian Radio, Television, and Telecommunications Commission. So they're the ones that regulate internet providers – um, uh, cell phone providers, stuff like that. So these are the people you want on your side. And they are cracking the whip much more than FCC or FTC have been cracking the whip down here. So basically, this is the final chapter for now on net neutrality governance framework. So basically, they've set out a policy that establishes strong safeguards against net neutrality violations and severely restricts the abilities for, for providers to engage in zero rating practices. Now, from what I can tell, these zero rating practices are the one that say, gorge on this thing here as much as you want. It won't cost you anything and it won't be counted against your data, which... When you hear about it, you say, oh, that's great. That's great. But no, that's not great. It may be good for you because you, you really like that. But what if I like this thing over there? Why am I being charged data for that when you get that for free? Yeah, exactly. It's the same kind of content. Why Why are you differentiating? I mean, what if people want to watch TechSnap, but they, you know, they really don't want to use YouTube? We have other ways of distributing this program. But you'll have to pay for that data on a lot of these plans or you know, a lot of these, you know, once these things are set up that way. Yep. And it's all about choices. If you don't want to use YouTube, you shouldn't be forced to if it's available another way. But if you're going to be penalized for using the same data but from another location, why? It's It's silly. I go back to what I've always thought of ISPs as – Providing a pipe. Right, a dumb pipe. My data here. A dumb pipe. Don't be doing stuff you shouldn't be doing. Just supply me my 300 megabits a second and don't do anything else. Don't be restricting my YouTube because I'm pulling down YouTube. Don't be restricting something else because you, as a content provider and an ISP, have it over here. Like, don't be doing silly buggers with Netflix. I'm looking at you, Comcast, just because you also provide movies. Don't be mucking about with Netflix. Thank you very much. Anyway. You're just protecting them because they use FreeBSD. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, they do. They do. And AWS. Yeah. We'll talk more about them later. Yeah. Back to the story at hand. Back to the story. So, Back in 2009, the commission established its first net neutrality policy, which actually had a good test in 2013 when a graduate student in telecommunications filed a complaint with the CRTC over how Bell, like Bell Canada, but it actually does a lot of ISP stuff, um, 
and its approach to mobile TV, its mobile TV product. And so in 2015, January 2015, the CRT released its decisions siding with, with, with Glass, with a graduate student class. Sorry. Um, at that time, the commission expressed concern that the service may end up inhibiting the introduction and growth of other mobile TV services accessed over the Internet, which reduces innovation and consumer choice. So this was two years ago. They were worried about it then. So basically, today's decision completes that process that started in there. Now I say today's, but this is actually April 20th. Um, so the commission concludes that, it, that differential pricing practices, generally speaking, result in A, a preference toward certain subscribers over others, B, a preference toward certain content providers over others, C, a disadvantage to, to subscribers who are not eligible for or interested in a different pricing package, and D, a disadvantage to content providers that are not eligible for or included in an offering. So basically, they're concluding that differential pricing is anti-competitive, which it is. It's, it's preferring one over another. And people can say, well, that's okay. Oh, they're allowed to do that. Well, it's going to be bad for you in the long run. And this is why I've always supported, well, why I support net neutrality. And some ISPs are, are, are well, some content providers or ISPs and content providers mixed in together right. are, are saying, oh, no, we have to be able to smooth things out and and throttle things back and stuff like that. What they're doing is they're confusing the issue by saying that because of threats and overuse and stuff like that, we have to be able to do this. Well, that's a different thing. That and you're using thing. that thing to say net neutrality. And this has nothing to do with being able to throttle yeah. things back and you stuff like that. You can limit my switch port. Like, no problem. You don't need to care what packets I'm sending through it. They get to that down here. Oh, really? Okay, interesting. They, they get, not not switch in particular, right. but but that that particular what you just said it, it, it will be relevant down here. Excellent. So, what the CRTC has done is established a framework that bears considerable similarity to what it did in two thousand and nine. It will allow for a complaints-based mechanism that can lead to an evaluation of whether the differential pricing is compliant with the law. So basically, someone complains, they investigate. That's pretty good. I like that. So I'm going to go into four main criteria that they went over. So basically... When they go to evaluate a complaint, they will look at the agnostic treatment of data. So, by zero rating data traffic from certain providers, that's wrong. But you are allowed differential pricing practices that treat data agnostic, so such as a time of day offering. Wouldn't you love cheaper internet, say, from midnight to six? I'd be downloading all my big backups then. Yeah, that would that would be nice. I mean, just kind so of like we already have with cell phones, right? If I was being charged for data. Yes, right. 
that's what I, I, I would take advantage of that. So th this is one thing. Be agnostic in your data. That's exactly what you said. Don't worry. You know, if you want to treat the device separate from the data it's pulling down, fine. But I'm not even sure about that. Why, yeah. does it, why does it matter to you whether I'm looking at something on my cell phone or looking at something on my laptop? I should be able to pull down the same type of stream. Right. I want hardware. I want to pay you a reasonable amount so that you can make, you know, make a fair profit, especially and then to be able to support and provide the pipe so that I can get this information. Yep. But beyond that, that's all I need. Yep. Stop throttling. Yeah. Stop playing silly buggers. So point B, the exclusiveness of the offering. So basically, they'll look and see whether or not the differential pricing practice is exclusive to a particular class or group of subscribers. So basically, give it to everyone. If you're going to offer something, offer it to everyone. They're going to the complaint mechanism will take will look at the impact. I hate that word. The effect on internet openness and innovation. So basically, they'll look at whether the differential pricing affects the ability of content providers or innovators to enter the market by creating barriers to entry, or whether it affects innovation, or whether different pricing practices favor large established content providers over smaller and new entrants. That sounds fair. So basically, they're not going to be favoring Netflix over someone smaller who's just starting up with the same thing. They're right. not going to, they're not going to, you're not going to be able to say, oh yeah, Netflix is data free, but this new startup, no, you gotta, you gotta pay for that data. So, and this is, this is the next one. This is the last one. Whether there is financial compensation involved. So basically, if an ISP receives payment from a content provider in exchange for zero rating data traffic to and from that provider, that'll raise a concern. So basically, you can't, no bribes. That's what I consider that. That's not a payment. That's a bribe. And that's what, wasn't it Comcast? Right. It was Comcast that said, Netflix, give me money and we'll, thro we'll stop throttling you. Right. It felt like they were, you know, they were really trying to, to get from both ends there, right? Like in theory, like as your Comcast subscriber... I'm already paying you to maintain your infrastructure, to provide the connections, yes. to get peering to the wider yes. internet for me. So yes. Why should other people then also pay for their like that? That doesn't make sense. Um, what would be an, a, an an analogy? An analogy would be uh, buying something uh, from Amazon, for example, and paying for shipping. And when UPS turns up, they say, "Oh, listen, you have to give me an extra five dollars." Right. Because they only paid to get it, it here. Was then there's snowing. the delivery fee and yep. the unload was, charge. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. <sighs> That's exactly Would not right. fly. No. Would not fly. And it doesn't seem yeah. like you see the, you know, it, like in many areas, it, it ends up being a very different thing between like business to business or enterprises, you know, or, or like big backhaul peering companies. And then what you end up seeing on the consumer side in that last mile. You know, especially since like a lot of these companies are so entrenched and may have the only connections available to a lot of subscribers. Yep, it's it just drives me crazy that that politicians are not getting behind net neutrality down here. It just it's, it infuriates me. It's one of the most important things with regards to the internet, and they just seem to be saying, "Oh no, it's not very important." It's okay, it's fine. One thing they did not look at was data caps. 
They declined to ban the practice, and they're going to monitor it for now. By the way, I want to point out who wrote this article, Michael Geist. Michael Geist has been involved in Internet-related and security and uh, things for several years. He's a lecturer, professor at University of Ottawa, and I actually ran into him one day. I was in a hallway while we were serving lunch for BSD Can or PGCon. Oh, nice. And, Mike, and Michael Geist walked by, and I said, sir, sir, can I talk? I was all fanboy sort of thing, just so. Anyway. That's adorable. It was. I thought, <laughs> I think that's why he doesn't answer my email yeah, anymore. Right. He's like, oh, it's that creepy Dan guy. Ooh. Yeah. I'll stay away. In sum, this is a huge win for net neutrality in Canada, as the CRTC was ultimately guiding by its long-standing principle that telecom regulations should restrict the ability of ISPs to, to determine winners and losers through their power as the Internet's gatekeepers. I just love that sentence. And that's exactly right. Stay out yeah. of the game. Especially Just, important, like when the internet is a main way to do business, to get news, to have, you know, even to like conduct a basic political activity. So it's even more important that we have these things protected. Yep. It's nice to see that there, you know, like, I mean, there may be subtle issues here or other things, but it seems like by and large, they, they understand what's happening. They have the right priorities for how to evaluate this. And, but not in a way that, you know, like it doesn't have to crush innovation doesn't it's not over necessarily over regulated it's like a reasonable set of clear principles that you know businesses can understand what they need to operate by and consumers can understand mm. the practices that you know the businesses they will enter into agreements yes. with will also be run with that's the key a third body well sorry a third party is setting the standards that this whole industry has to comply to and from what i understand down here the industry is setting their own policy Right. Sorry. No. No. Anyway. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so uh, we're moving to Canada then? TechSnap Canada edition? That can be done. Yeah. We'll have to consider that. Toronto I, here is a lovely place. Uh, Ottawa. Oh, Ottawa. Thank okay. You. I mean, Thank Vancouver you. would be Ottawa. easiest for me. It's just like a hop, skip, and a jump yep. across the border. But... You might like Victoria better than Oh, Vancouver. I do love Victoria. Yes. That's a good idea. Maybe my next vacation. Mm-hmm. Anything else you'd like to add about this depressing or uplifting story, depending nope. on which side of the line nope. you're on? No, nope. okay. nothing. Awesome. Well, if you're fed up with service providers, companies, super vertical integrations that you don't feel really are providing you the service that you expect, my friends, head on over to techsnap.ting.com. There you will find a mobile provider that does things differently. In fact, it's mobile. That makes sense. That's what Ting is. They read, you know, they're an MVMO, so they, they use two different networks. They, you know, they've got GSM, they've got CDMA, and they resell those to you. And they, they provide the value add of, of service. They're not trying to sell you a new, you know, a new store for your apps or a new store for your videos. They want to give you connectivity. So whether it's minutes, messages, megabytes, they just, they just charge you for what you use. It starts at $6 a month. Then you just add on, head on over to the rates page. Really, that's the best thing to do techsnap.ting.com slash rates and there you'll find this awesome interactive website that'll show you exactly what you can expect to pay go check out what what you use now they even have you know if you're with one of the big name subscribers they even have a handy form it'll log into your account for you it'll calculate what your expected savings will be they make it really easy 
there's a ton of other great benefits too. Like there's no contracts or early termination termination fees. You don't get stuck in one of these contracts where you're like, well, you get this many minutes per month, this many messages. If you go over, there's overage charges. Now, what thing you pay for what you use, right? So if you have a month where you need to use more, use more. If you're like me, most months you use, you know, a little bit less or a lot less. That's where it comes in. If you go to techsnap.ting.com, that'll get you a $25 service credit. That'll probably pay for your whole month, maybe your first two months. It really depends on how much you use. That's the whole point, right? This is cell phone service for adults. Pay for what you use. Upfront costs. You know what you're going to spend. There's no overage charges or penalties. All the stuff that you want included is included, right? Like voicemail, caller ID, tethering, hotspot, three-way calling. The tethering one, that's a big one for me. There's a lot of, a lot of service plans out there. Tethering's extra. Or, you know, only this subset of your data you can tether with. Or you have to get a separate agreement and make sure it's enabled on your account. No, Ting, they don't care what you want to do with it, right? They're a dumb pipe for your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes. So, like, you want to send text, you want to make phone calls, great. If you want to just you just want to use data, that's six dollars a month, and then however many megabytes you use, it's so easy. It's perfect for a backup phone. It's perfect for like maybe you don't maybe you don't like cell phones, right? You just want to use the data and a SIP connection. Ting's honey badger with that. Just do it. It doesn't matter. That's the thing. Ting wants you to use their service for, you know, whatever you need that falls within their allowed uses, of course. But that's a wide range. And and they're on the forefront of technology, right? They're cord cutters. They have a lot of fancy gadgets. I was talking about earlier. I've got my new replacement Pixel phone here in the studio. I'm excited to, excited to unbox that, set it all up, get back to having a real phone. And you know what? It's going to be on the Ting network. And it's so simple to set up. You just pop in the SIM card. They have a ton of sales where the SIM cards are only $1, so just stay tuned, watch their blog for that. Otherwise, it's like $9. You can use that service credit for those things, right? So, like, if, you're, if, you're, if you want to go buy a new phone, head on over there, do that. They have a great, a great number of unlocked phones. They work on CDMA. They work on GSM. You can probably bring your own device. That's what makes things different, right? They're not trying to sell you extra services. They're not trying to get in your way. They're just trying to make it work. So head on over to techsnap.ting.com. That lets them know you appreciate them sponsoring our program and you appreciate them not being in that net neutrality game. So thank you, Ting. Dan, you've turned into a clock. What has happened? When my rack was powered off, I could hear this clock ticking. <laughs> Clocks are like that, right? Like you're like, it's an electric first- clock. Oh, that's so funny. It's an electric clock, and I can hear it ticking now. Those first five minutes of ticking, you're like, okay, it's not so bad. And then like 30 no, minutes no, no, later, no. you're like, what is no. that? No, it didn't, didn't, didn't bother me. Okay, nice. It's something that has to go up on the wall here when I have time. But yeah, when when the servers were all powered off, I had the window open. I could hear all the birds. I can hear the birds when that's on, but I cannot hear that clock ticking. When the servers are on. Uh, and that's why it's important to have a sufficient white noise. Like, you know, hey, you're having trouble sleeping, just pop on over to the server room out like a light. It, it, it's very good because I, I can sometimes not hear people knock on the front door. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. That's only not good if you're expecting a new hardware replacement part and it's the delivery. Right. And that's when I usually work from the, from the living room. You've thought of everything already. And that brings us to the feedback segment, the time in our show where we take a little time, look through our mailbag. Oh, we should really clean that up. Review Twitter. No, we're not getting distracted. And hear from you guys, our favorites, the audience. So what do we have today, Dan? We have Beehive 
Ooh, I like it. Which I've never used, but it's kind of it seems like it's to. come a long way. I've only played with it like a little bit, but I remember when it was kind of like first announced. <laughs> um, and it seems like since then they've made a lot of strides. They've added a lot of features. You know, they've come a long way with uh, you know like uh, early graphical boot and and all mm-hmm. that stuff. Which is now they're nice supporting Windows. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, now you can do Windows without having to do the like mm-hmm. headless pre-sell. I forget what that's called, but you know, set it up so it'll just pre-configure everything. Yep. Awesome. All right. Well, let's see what we've got here. Jake writes to us about advice on a virtualization server. Hey guys, thanks for doing the show. Hey, thank you for watching. Also, thanks for mentioning the cuckoo's egg last week. It's been a very entertaining read. Oh, that makes me really happy. I I enjoy that book a lot. It's great to see other people. Liking it as well, and I think Cliff Stoll deserves a little bit more notoriety. Okay, on to his actual feedback. Uh, I'd like to have a machine that was just a pure virtual machine server. I have a machine that has an AMD FX8320, which is an 8-core machine, 16 gigs of RAM, and whatever hard drives and video cards I wanted to throw in it. The goal is to banish the machine somewhere where it won't heat the house up when running and run headless. I'm trying to decide whether to keep this machine or sell it and buy something more server-ish and less desktop-ish. I was interested in running Beehive on FreeBSD. Does Beehive support AMD that well? I installed FreeNAS Corral and indicated and it, and it indicated only partial VM support. If Beehive isn't a solid option on AMD, everything else is on the table. I'm just curious what each of you would do in my situation. Thanks again, and please do keep the deep dives coming. Don't worry, Jake. You can be sure we will. So what do you think about Jake's uh, question here? I didn't know. So, I went <clears throat> and I asked the experts. Ooh, nice. I went and I asked in the IRC channel for Beehive. First, first I asked on the FreeBSD ports channel, and they sent me over there. Um, for those that don't know, Beehive is like a hypervisor. It, it's uh, designed for FreeBSD. Um, you can run FreeBSD in it. I believe you can run a lot of Linuxes in it, and you can also run Windows in it. So why would you run FreeBSD in Beehive? Um, because you're testing kernel code, and you don't want to run it in a jail because that uses your same kernel. So you run it in Beehive, where you can crash it, where you can change it, you can jump into the debugger, stuff like that. So it's it's great for that. Now... To the question of whether it's AMD or Intel, I had someone say generally it's better on Intel, but I think that's very subjective as to how much better it is or what problems you're going to have. So basically, uh, I was told generally it's good on either, but SVM has had some issues that were recently found but are being fixed. SVM is the equivalent of VMX on AMD. So SVM is the AMD feature. It's called VMX on Intel. So there was an issue. It was found. It's being fixed. Um, Usually it's fine when you run Beehive with the minus W flag, which includes unimplemented MSRs. I don't know what that is. But Windows has been freezing on AMD, and that's being debugged now. And they said the bugs have been found on Ryzen, R-Y-Z-E-N. Do you know what that is? I didn't look that up, sorry. Uh, that's their most recent architecture. They just released it like last month or a couple weeks ago. AMD, yes. AMD's? Yeah. yeah, so it's their okay. brand new architecture. Yep. So 
from what Peter was able to find, it seems to be a race condition in the SVM interrupt injection code that happens on faster CPUs. But again, for the most part, I've had no issues on my AMD systems apart from rights to unimplemented MSRs, which are easily fixed by the W flag. So my answer to Jake is don't use FreeNAS Corral. Um, try Beehive on your AMD because it's, it's it's there. Try it. See if it works. Because what could go wrong if you don't like it? Get an Intel and do that instead. But use it. It should it should be fine. You're not gonna. It doesn't sound like you need to spend any money. Whatever hard drives and video cards I wanted to throw in it. So you have a working system. Install for your BSD. Start playing around with Beehive. What's the downside? If you don't like it, you you try something else or you get an an Intel card. Yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. Intel's box. But yeah, I would be curious to know what. You know what kind of end game Jake has in mind here? Is it just for personal use? Is the you know is the use prioritized or is the learning what bases it? Because if you're just going to use it kind of as something you don't interact with that much, but mostly to spin up VMs, yeah. then there are more he says, options. He says somewhere where it won't heat up the house. So yeah. and so if you're it's, less it's interested in more, more, yeah, if you if you're less concerned with the you know it depends. So if you really want to learn like. I want to get better with FreeBSD or I want to learn about Beehive, that seems like a great option. And I think it's a great option anyway. If you're less concerned with that and you just want, you know, just want some VMs and you do run into problems with the AMD setup, you can always go look on the Linux side, uh, KVM. Uh, there's also higher level abstractions. So like libvert, mm-hmm. it looks like libvert has a Beehive driver. So you might be able to use that or layer on some tools that sit at, sit at a higher level. Like if you want like a graphical thing, a couple of ones I know of, uh, one is the Kimchi project, which is just like a nice. Let's. It's like a nice web. I don't even have a picture there. Uh, anyway, it's like a nice web front end. There's a couple other ones like Archipel and a few other things that can tie in there. So you have more options if you want to do that. Uh, if yep. you want to get your hands dirty, you could do KVM and QEMU, but it seems like Beehive would probably be a better answer in that case. Um. OpenBSD has got their own hypervisor right. underway. Did yeah. you know that? I, I remember hearing about that a little bit now on BSD that, now, but I'm a little bit behind that, on how that's going. I don't, I don't know either, but that that would be so good to have. Yes. It can be ported to other systems too, from yes, what I hear. Totally. People, well, and it'll, yeah. you know, if it's in the OpenBSD style, that it'll be minimal and clean and secure by default. So that's I think that's something that's badly needed. So it'll be nice to have that, even if it's just as a reference. Mm-hmm. Yep, it'll be great. All right. Well, Jake, thank you for writing to us. Uh, let us know how it goes, what you end up deciding, and uh, hey, what cool things you get up to virtualizing. All right. So that ends the email feedback this week. Please do write. Uh, go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact. You can find the email contact form there, or you can find us both on Twitter. Uh, stay tuned for the end of the show. We'll talk about where we are, live there. Uh, Dan, you wanted to talk a little bit about DNS. I did. Um, someone said that they wanted uh, a deep dive on DNS, but I'm not going to do that. But what I will do is, for those of you that have never looked at DNS, give you a good analogy of what DNS is. Um, I've always explained it to non-technical people as being a phone book. When, imagine everyone's familiar with a phone book for their hometown. Um, might be that big. Then when you get into a city, it's like that. Now imagine a phone book for the whole state and then a phone book for the whole whole country and then a phone book 
for the whole continent and then the world. But that's not something you want to carry around with you. So that's why we have phone books for all these different towns and villages and different places and stuff like that. And, and why instead of having a massive book for everything, you have different books all around the country. And, and that's how DNS is broken up as well, where instead of having one massive server that everyone queries, we have servers all over the world and all the information for all the different domains is split up amongst all the different servers. Um, to give you an idea, if, if you want to look up um, somebody's name and phone number and you know where they live, you can go to the library and maybe they have access to that. But imagine if you just wanted to look up dan.langel.org, one of my domains, it's, my web, it's one of my blogs. So if you wanted to look that up, well, really – the way domain, domains work is you'd actually go to the dot server because every domain ends with a hidden dot. It's not always shown, but there is a dot there from a technical point of view. And so what you do is you go to the dot servers and you say, hey, listen, I'm looking for help here. Can you tell me where I look up org? And they say, oh, yes, you look up org over there and they'll give you some name servers and you go and look that up there and they say, oh, well, okay, now I want to know where langel.org is. And they say, oh, yes, the name servers for langel.org are over here. And so you go there and you look in that book. And then in that book, you probably will find the records for dan.langel.org. But conceivably, you could have them say, oh, you want dan.langel.org, not langel.org. Well, for dan.langel.org, you go over here. And that's where it should end. Um, so that's sort of an idea of how it works. But th think of it in terms of uh, of having a huge book with everything in it, but all the different parts of the book are spread out in different places. And you start at the top and you work your way down like a tree. Um, and that's really what DNS is all about. It's about being distributed uh, so that if one node goes down, you can still get to the information you need. Most domains have at least two name servers. Uh, some may have three. Uh, I think for langel.org right now, I have six. Um, oh, speaking of which, I just, I did not start this thinking about this, but I did tell them I was going to mention them. Uh, buddy buddy.ns buddy.buddyns.com or .net I started playing yeah, buddyns.com I started playing around with them uh, uh, just last week um, and it's the difference between an authoritative DNS provider and a non-authoritative DNS provider and this came up at work recently when we used that term basically BuddyNS.com is for domain owners. And what was it? Uh, Easy DNS? Someone that's, that Cisco just bought? Oh, um, yeah. What is that? Let's see. Uh, basically, they're who you set your non-technical folks DNS 
servers to. So there's two types of DNS providers. DNS providers for uh, non-domain owners, where you go to look up various DNS queries, and then there are DNS providers for domain owners, such as buddyns.com. Did you look at it? Yeah. OpenDNS, that's the one. Yes, OpenDNS. So you put your grandmother on OpenDNS because it will protect her from a lot of very nasty things, um, such as fissures and uh, malware and stuff like that. Because OpenDNS has a big cache of of known bad IP addresses and stuff like that. So it won't let you go off to these websites that have this phishing content on it. Um, so we've got sidetracked. And full full disclosure, OpenDNS was acquired by Cisco and unemployed by Cisco. Um, so D- DNS is like that. Um, it's just basically a hier- hierarchical uh, distributed network of information. And what you do as a domain owner is you specify your name servers out there and your zone files. That's what it's called as a zone file. We're not going to get into what that is. But your zone file sits on your name servers. And when those queries come down, somebody's going to start querying your DNS server. And that's how they're going to know where your blog is. There's a lot more to it than that, but that's a good start. Oh, and this came up at work today. If you're sending mail to foo at foo.bar, if you're sending mail to me at foo.bar.com, foo.bar.com does not need an MX record. If you're sending mail to me at bar.com, maybe you need an MX record and maybe you don't. But if you're sending to a host, generally you do not need an MX record, despite what some people think. Interesting. That's good to know, actually. Mm -hmm. I I don't know if I've gotten into that level of detail for my own mail configurations, but I suppose that makes sense. Well, by by default, your your MX is your host, right? Yeah, because that's what mail used to be all the time. Was it used to be sent to a host? <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Like, hey, I want to send this mail to that server yeah. over there. Yep. Here's where it lives. That you can look up yep. its address. Yep. yep, yep. And then people got domains, and email became portable. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Do do you, do you have a domain that you own that you? Receive mail on, or do you use someone else? Uh, yeah, if if people want, they can send email to Wes at noblepain.com. Oh. I think there's probably a few. I mean, there's all the other standard, you know, email yeah. attributes that you should admin and all those things. But uh, yeah, I, I I bought a domain. I bought langel.org. Well, that wasn't the first email domain I had, but I got langel.org because I never wanted to change my email address again. <laughs> right. Yes. Exactly. It's so, it seems so archaic, you know, to have it tied to some like random ISP that you had ten years ago or something yes. like, and that's going to be your interface to the world. Yes. No, thank you. Yes, but it's not always easy, right? Like you have to pay for a domain name and then understand how to set that up. And like already, we're too deep for ninety five percent of people to try to get yes. that set up. Yes, that's why I know that Langel dot com feeds out. Email addresses. So you, I could have Dan at Langel.com if I wanted, I think. Find yourself a more meaningful email address. Oh, yeah. Look at that. Real 35, names. 35 bucks a year. Wow. That's not bad. Yeah. Especially if, it, you know, you take, you don't have to do any uh, 
Nothing. I, I, I don't know. Do they provide storage, 10 gig? It's webmail. So, oh, you can use it mobile, too. So they must have IMAP servers. See? iPhone, iPad, Android, Windows Phone. I'm really hoping desktop. this is secretly your business and you're just uh, promoting it right here very underhandedly. <laughs> who doesn't uh, want atlingill.com? I mean, uh, come on. Who wants that? Yeah. I am the only person at my company with my last name. <laughs> uh, if, you, if you go out to Nova Scotia, you open up the phone book that I told you about, you'll yeah. see two pages of Langels in some parts of Nova Scotia. Oh, really? Uh, Interesting. I, I, I went to school with two two or three other Langels that were not related to me. <laughs> That's bizarre. I suppose I see a few number a fair number of pains out in the world, so that does it, that it, does happen. It, it's a French name. Okay. That makes sense. From Normandy. And I suspect that the Langels in my family uh were at one time French before the British took over that part uh, of what was known as Acadia. Right. I may have told this story before. A little bit, there, I think, but there, I'm not sure. There is a U.S. connection. And so when the British took over, they were very distrusting of the Frenchies that were left. So they said, either you swear allegiance to the British crown or we're going to kick you out. Time came. Some didn't swear. So they were kicked out. And they were forcibly removed from the land. And this in history is known as the expulsion of the Acadians. So at that time, most uh, many of them went to the nearest French colony, which happened to be Louisiana. And these people are now known as Cajuns. Oh, yeah. Because Cajun is a mispronunciation of the word Acadian. Isn't it funny how things like that develop and then just become entrenched in culture and language yep. and yep. they yep. just and, stay there? And, and every time I tell that story, it sends a, sends a shiver down my spine when I get to that. And that, it really does. It's just such a cool story. That is a cool story. And it speaks a lot to uh, human nature, I think. Yep. Okay. That's enough about DNS. Yeah, totally. All right. Well, that wraps up our feedback. If you love DNS, you want to hear more about it, or you hate DNS and wish we would never talk about it again, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact. That's how you send us email. We'll read it right here on the air if you're lucky. Uh, please do give us feedback. We love it. It's a lot of fun. It helps drive the show, helps us build our connection with you guys, our audience. And hey, that's what we're here for. So write to us, and we'll see you uh, next week right back here for the feedback segment. And that brings us to the final segment of today's show. That's the roundup, the time of the show where we want to share some stories. We didn't have enough time to you know, do a deep dive, cover them in the main segment, but we think you'll find them interesting. Go check them out. You can think of it as homework for the TechSnap program. So what do you have today, Mr. Dan? I'm always excited for the roundup. There's always, you know, it's, it's one of the most diverse sections of the show. There's like strange stuff in there and stuff that might not be appropriate for other things or things we don't want to, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily something that we want to deep dive in, but it's always fascinating. Well, we only have three things tonight. One, two, three. Yes. So it's a light roundup. It's a light roundup. Last week, I think we talked about the APFS. Oh, if yes. not, it was it was the week before. So this chap has started to reverse engineer uh, um, APFS. And it's interesting to see what he's come up with. And I wonder how much people have gone through this and started comparing it to ZFS. 
because I don't see the words ZFS mentioned here anywhere. But they're talking about timestamps being 64-bit nanoseconds. So one one hundred one one thousand millionth or one one billionth, one one billionth, one, billionth seconds of a second, yeah. from UTC 1970, so the Unix epoch. So the current timestamp is around whatever. Standard block sizes are four four uh, 4K per block, and it is a copy on write file system. Woo! No surprises there. <laughs> do you have one of those on your desk? Uh, yes, I do. Well, it's Chris's. So I've just, <laughs> I've just, uh, you know, co-opted it for this here I show. I think you should use that much more often. Excellent. I will. So yes, it's copy and write, and copy and write is very useful because it is very good for maintaining integrity. They have checkpoints now. From what remember, I remember that they have checkpoints, but not check sums. Oh, the header starts with a checksum for the whole block. So they use Fletcher's checksum algorithm. They do not, if I recall, they do not checksum the data. Only the metadata, yeah. Only the metadata. So I guess that's good enough. I would have liked to have had a checksum. I think that's the most contentious part of this whole, you know, everything else I've seen with the the APFS discussion. I think that was like, that's, that's what people are talking about the most. Yeah. Well, I wonder how, you know what, I wouldn't be surprised if they're doing this, if they're not doing a checksum for iOS, but when OS X comes out, it has a checksum. You know, that's an interesting question. And it makes you wonder, too, like what they're targeting is like, I think I think for me, one of the things about like ButterFS and the Linux side, like it hasn't, you know, it, it did not develop into the ZFS replacement that some Linux users hoped that it would, especially not for like, you know, I'm going to go build a terabyte or a, I mean a petabyte array and it's going to be my storage for the next 10 years, right? That's not how yep. it's used. But it did, I think, show a lot of people that there are benefits to just having copy on write, being able to do snapshots, all of those things, even just for your root file system. Uh, so it makes me wonder about like what what is the design goals of APFS? You know, it seems like they can get a lot of, you know, something like boot environments or other ways to make sure their devices are more stable, even if they never intend for desktop users to have a big you know, ex- external yeah. RAID array. Well, to be honest, the people that are using OS X are very different from the people using, for, sorry, not the people, but the use case yeah, for right. OS X is very different from the use case for Linux or FreeBSD. Totally different. Yes. I just wonder, like, will uh, like will people start using it? Let's say you're like an audio video professional and you want to have like a big APFS array over Thunderbolt for your clips. Will that be better or will you miss the checksums on your data there? And is you know, would ZFS still be a better option? Or I'm going to, I'm going to install these apps this afternoon. Let me snapshot my file system before I do that. Yeah. See, that seems great. Or like, Hey, I'm going to upgrade the the new OS X point release or whatever. Like boom, snapshot done. I'm going to delete all these photos. Let me snapshot before (laughs) I do that. Or what was the contentious issue where, like, now Apple uploads your songs to the cloud or something? I don't, I don't know. But, yeah, there's, like, a lot of use cases for this. So even even without that, it looks very promising. And this is a great uh, blog post. They have a lot of detail here. If you're a file system nerd or you want to get down to the, the nitty-gritty of what's going on here, I definitely recommend it. Anything else you want to add about uh, the APFS well, stuff? I, I, I kept thinking of 
how people have implemented SIFs and, and Samba and stuff like that. So I wouldn't be surprised if they start doing this with a remote, like a, an open source version of APFS. Oh yeah. You know, that's a good, that, that could be interesting. That could be the start of a new, you know, a new next generation file system, kind of take what Apple has started and use that design engineering and start something new. Huh. I had not thought of that, but you're right. That would, that would be very consistent with kind of what we've seen happen, especially in the file system space. Okay. Well, we'll have to stay tuned. I'm sure we will talk about more about that file system uh, as it develops it, as we start hearing more, uh, you know, more real world use cases, more server use cases, more laptop use cases, all of those things. Yeah. Let's swap the next two. Yeah, okay, sure. All righty then, on to our next roundup item. This, my friends, this is why you secure SSH on your web-facing server. So this is a link over to uh, over to the Linux subreddit. Uh, and the, let's see, the user jprice111 uh, has posted something. It looks like it's from his personal logs. There we go. But the host name is like SCW. Yeah. So who knows where he got it from? Six four five. So yeah. And if you can see that there, you'll see failed password for root, failed password from root from like different IPs, a lot from one IP address, uh, authentication failures. I, yep. I think the summary is spot on. This is exactly why. I mean, but one, look at the timestamp. This covers five minutes. Oh yeah. Right. Yes. Exactly. That's a good point. It's amazing. I know. Like. I'm sure every junior admin out there has had that moment. Like you send up your first public server or whatever, and you're used to the, you know, the internet's so vast and you're like, well, I don't know. Like how often do you go ping some random IP address, but people do. And you suddenly start realizing like, oh wow. Yeah. Someone in China really wants to knock on my ports. So, I mean, we shouldn't have to say it, but like, come on, use keys, super easy. Fail to ban. Use keys. Not necessarily fail fail to ban. Like uh, some places, who have to allow SSH in from everywhere? Yeah, yeah. But my servers, they only allow SSH in from certain, yeah, right, known locations. That's always like, a great place to start. Is like just whitelist look, the things that you trust. Yes. Um, and despite what some people say here, I move it to another port. Why do I move it to another port to avoid this in my logs? That's the only reason. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think that debate it, gets. Uh, to, yes. Go ahead. Well, that, that debate gets sidetracked a lot, right? Like, no one's saying that should be your security precaution or your security model. But I do think it doesn't hurt in that, yeah, you will, like, there's a, a reasonable percentage of script kitties, automated bots that you'll you'll just miss out on. Not, I'll miss them in the logs. Right, yes. Or they'll and miss you. Because my servers allow only key, key yeah. authentication. Uh, and I just don't want all this crap in my logs that I have to look through when something has happened. So that's why I put it on another port. Yeah, exactly. You yeah. know, I think I've seen other things too. Like uh, we were talking about S pipe D earlier, the Colin Percival little yeah. anything. Yep. Um, yep. People will put that in front of SSH uh, so that, you know, you can, you can use that, you connect, and then you have an SSH connection over your secure socket connection. Uh, so there's a lot of options for that. Uh, I've seen some pretty sophisticated like port knocking setups as well. That's probably more than most people do, but like really if you can get, get your keys in order maybe you have like a hardware token device as well or second factor set up you can get you can eliminate a lot of this problem and the noise in your logs yes it yes. is great though it's nice to have this you know it's nice to have people pointing this out because it is a real problem and it it's surprisingly so, easy for people to, to get into your server 
You still using some RSA keys? Not personally, but I'm sure I have coworkers or friends who do. I, I do. I have some RSA keys. Yeah, I think my I, probably my main work one is indeed an RSA key. But all my like yeah. personal systems are newer ciphers. But that's a good that's yeah. a good thing to be aware of, right? Like it's really easy, especially if you touch a lot yeah. of legacy systems. There's a ton of people, and I've, I feel like I've seen a lot of like pull requests or other things like adding these old ciphers because we never updated past yes. DSS or whatever. And it's like, are you kidding me? Or old, yes. old hardware. Proprietary network appliances or other things are a huge yes. source of that. Which you cannot upgrade. There yeah. is no There's newer no patch. Version. There's no newer support. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's very unlikely that someone's going to be SSHing into this PDU. <laughs> right. And you can then, you know, use further things to restrict it so that you, you know, you can only access that from so such and such. And, it can only be accessed from inside this. Do you run department. into uh, like Java problems? I know I've seen some like network gear that has like a Java interface to manage it, but like it's an ancient version of a Java applet that no modern browser will like allow you to run. Yes. Even yes, that could be pretty some, painful. Some of my servers have that for IPMI. Yeah. Oh, yes, IPMI is a big one. Totally. Although some of the servers that we've been setting up at work recently, they have. IPMI over SSH. Oh, tell me more. So you, you can SSH in and issue all your commands on the command line. Oh, that sounds really nice, actually. It's wonderful. <sighs> um, Civilized. Yeah, and we just... Not even tell you, them, you, you could script it. Yeah, no, SSH into the box. That's great. And then you can do everything right from there. Because the IPMI stuff's really handy. It just sucks how often, you know, it's like often super proprietary extensions on top and weird interfaces and... Ugh. I just want to be able to have like an Ansible playbook that goes and does things for me. Come on, guys. Okay, well, enough with that. Go secure your SSH servers. Make sure that you don't have to share something like that. Uh, although, if you do have it, we love... Another piece of feedback we love seeing is, you know, security failure, security theater, other things that, that make you laugh, make you cry, make you a little more scared. Please send them to us. Okay, and then on to our final roundup item. Uh, I saw this one I thought, like, hey, this is right up Mr. Dan, Postgres Dan's alley. Here is a neat, yes. a neat story about how SWAT.io migrated from MySQL to Postgres yes. in two years. And they list the top reasons that they were not satisfied with MySQL 5.6. And this is one thing. Cannot online add a new column. That's interesting because you you can do that in a transaction in, in Postgres. You know, begin, modify, alter table, my accounts, add column, freebie uh text semicolon close commit right semicolon, i mean i feel like that's enter. been part You're of done. my deployments right? like i'll go add the new column and then yeah. i'll run with it and then later yeah. you'll add in the code that uses that new column yeah. and wow i didn't that, realize that that's how i've upgraded fresh ports for years totally huh it's never taken it offline i did not realize this cannot in a reliable way add indexes online There is no JSON support. Yeah, that's a bigger and bigger one now that like no schema, no SQL databases are popular. Had complete lockups where max connections was exceeded. We can never find a source internal, external to our system. Literally hundreds of connections during select statements, but nothing else. Eventually manually killing them solved it. So, yeah. Wow. It's neat to see this, like it's a very, um, you know, it's like a real world kind of in the trenches 
these are the things. Here's like, you know, we have a real thing that we're trying to run here. We have uptime requirements, that kind of stuff. And here are the like nitty gritty problems that you might have, which, like, you know, maybe, maybe MySQL is what makes sense for your workflow. Maybe not, but things like this can help you kind of decide like the problems they ran into, the benefits they saw, and maybe it can help give you, you know, a better indication of like what you need to prepare for, what problems might you run into if you're going to try to attempt such a big migration uh, for your own business, right? Like I know some people who work company, they've just been trying to get uh, off of Oracle databases and move to Postgres. And that's been like a, it's been a huge refactoring for them. So I realize it can take some effort. If you have nice abstractions, it can be less work, but you know, there are a lot of these little differences where surprising differences, even though like 90% of the stuff's the same. It's interesting reading this as they go through it. So anyone that's thinking of why would they use MySQL or Postgres, have a look at this and, and go through it and see how it works. Because it is an interesting read. I haven't read it all yet, but I want to. Yeah, that's right. It's homework for all of us, not just you guys, audience. Indeed. Awesome. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of the roundup. Uh, Anything else you would like to leave before we leave this program? Test your switches before you jump into them. (laughs) Yes. You don't want to have network downtime like Dan. Although, I mean, it sounds like you had some good backups in place. So also, you know, also do that. There there were good backups in place, but there was the most annoying thing was – not quite understanding how the VLANs worked. Oh, yeah. I suppose it's a good refresher on, like, you know, how everything sets up, how you need it to work, that kind Mm -hmm. of stuff. It's Mm -hmm. always nice when you're, not always nice, but it's good to be forced to revisit sometimes. Yeah, and once I got everything done, the next thing I did, I redid all the cabling in the rack. All the internet cables came out, I redid it. That must have been satisfying. It was, but that added another six hours. I was going to say, yeah, at least a couple hours. Yikes. All right. Well, uh, I guess that wraps up episode 316 of the TechSnap program. We were broadcast live on April 25th, 2017. If you'd like to find more of us, you can go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com. We've got the archives there of this show, the last generation of this show, and all the other fine shows on Jupiter Broadcasting. jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. That will tell you when we're here live. You can come be a part of the IRC room. It's a lot of fun. Or if you miss us, go to jupiterbroadcasting.com and slash contact. That's the contact page. Send us stuff. If that doesn't work, there's techsnap.reddit.com. And and you can find us both on Twitter. I'm at Wes Payne. He is at techsnap underscore Dan. And that's it for this program. So make sure you come join us next week. Say goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Dan. And goodbye, audience.